The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, you know, there's a lot of action in Acts. But in this last half of chapter 18, there are no riots here, no miracles, no great revival, no shipwreck, no conflict. Basically, the main thing we see involve a haircut and some hermeneutics. It goes from the Jews attacking Paul by bringing him before Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, and Gallio basically saying, don't bother me with your religious questions. He drives them out of the tribunal in verse 16. Some people beat up poor Sosthenes. They beat him up, the ruler of the synagogue and Gallio. He's just indifferent to it all. We go from a trial, a conflict, and a riot to Paul leaving after he stays. After some days, he, he leaves. He goes back to the sending church in Antioch. And Luke tells us that he stops and gets a haircut. And in the meantime, Luke tells us about Priscilla and Aquila, giving a guy named Apollos some doctrinal correction. That's, that's the big, those are the big things that happen in this section. So every once in a while, I'll, um, I'll see what some of my favorite teachers have to say about a, a certain passage. Uh, I like listening to Tim Keller's sermons. One of the best I've ever heard just in presenting the gospel in very winsome, witty ways. Uh, Nothing on this. R.C. Sproul's commentary, first section of chapter 18, skips on to 19. (laughs) Nothing. Thus you have haircuts and hermeneutics. Uh, Not very exciting. But I suspect, it is the... It is exciting because I suspect your life, your life is not filled with the action of trials and mobs and conflict, this kind of conflict either. I suppose your life is more likely uh, resembling ordinary things, ordinary things like haircuts and conversations about Jesus. So in that sense, I think we can relate to this section. And I think there are some really good encouragements for us. And to help us see these, let's, um, and, and to apply them into our lives, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help this morning. Lord Jesus, we come, we come boldly before your throne and recognize that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. We remember how you told us that we would do greater things than you did during your earthly ministry because you would send us the helper, your Holy Spirit. And when we think of this, it's exciting, it's it's comforting, it's hopeful to realize that you, Jesus, are you are always with us because of the Holy Spirit. It's good for us to remember that we are not alone and that what we are a part of here in your church is the outworking of your kingdom. It's exciting to realize that we are not simply, we're not simply waiting around, waiting for a day to come, but that we're citizens now. You've given us a calling. You've given us the spirit to help us in the building of your kingdom. Lord, help us, help us to see this. Help us to realize that we are not aimlessly drifting through life without purpose, but that you are sovereign over our circumstances, over our situations, our abilities, abilities to contribute in ways that may seem very ordinary, but you are able to work through these ordinary ordinary gifts, ordinary circumstances and bring about great things. We trust you with that. So thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. Help us to see and live in ways that are purposeful and pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word, Acts 18, beginning with verse 18 to the end of the chapter. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencria, his he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This is God's word. You may be seated. So... After this big ordeal in Corinth, we read that that Paul stays many days longer. Paul had, he had stayed a year and a half in Corinth, the longest to this point that he had stayed anywhere. It's It's a major city in his ministry. And Gallio's dismissal of the of the Jews allowed for Paul to remain many days longer than that. They even beat up a ruler of the synagogue, which apparently sent a message to the Jews to not create a disturbance over these religious disagreements. We had also read earlier that Priscilla and Aquila are there because the emperor Claudius kicked out all of the Jews from Rome. Apparently the Christians as well, just a similar kind of disturbance, right? And he's like... Out of here. And so, Priscilla and Aquila are in Corinth. It was was Claudius' way of dealing with these disturbances. And and Gallio's actions, they they sent a similar message to the Jews. And so Paul stays many more days because of, of this resulting peace. But we read in verse 18... That he decided to set sail for Syria. Back to the home church in Antioch. Paul goes from, from Corinth to, to Sencria, where he cuts his hair and sets sail for the home church in, in Antioch. Of all the things that, that Paul may have done, you, it's interesting. When we read these details in the scripture, we should say, now why did, of all the things that Luke could have told us, Why does he tell us this? You know, maybe Paul did a little souvenir shopping, got lunch. We don't hear about that. We hear about him getting a haircut. Luke decides to tell us that Paul gets a haircut. Why is this important? Why do we need to know this, this particular detail? Well, it's more than Paul, you know cleaning himself up as before he gets back to the home church. Because Luke tells us that he was under a vow. So there's this connection with a vow and the haircut. And there's a lot of speculation here because it sounds like a Nazarite vow. The kind of vow that we read about in Numbers chapter 6. A Nazarite vow involved 
abstinence, kind of like fasting or, or what people do during Lent, making a commitment to abstain from, from something for a time. So with a Nazarite vow, it involved abstaining from strong drink, anything associated with grapes, and not cutting your hair. And normally the hair would be cut outside the temple area in Jerusalem. But Paul cuts his hair in Sancria before he gets on the ship, before boarding the ship. Normally there would be this, this elaborate offering ritual in the temple involving animal sacrifice, a burnt offering, a sin offering, peace offering, grain and drink offerings. So it's hard to imagine Paul making a sacrifice that would involve the shedding of blood, right? Since, since Jesus' sacrifice, it's the ultimate blood atonement that fulfills um, all things, ends those forms of sacrifices. We're in this in-between time, which is really interesting. In between the old covenant and the new, this, a couple of generations, so... So the temple's still there. There's still sacrifices going on. It's a really unique time period in church history. And, and with this, there's a lot of debate because it looks like a Nazarite vow of sorts. But we know that Paul would not engage in anything. You know, he, he was so adamant about circumcision, right? So why would he, why would he offer a, a sacrifice knowing the significance of of Jesus' sacrifice. So, so there's a little confusion here, the little controversy here. He wouldn't do anything to minimize or ignore the sacrifice of Jesus. So what is he doing here? It's a vow. Paul may have, some think he may have used it to evangelize the Jews as he goes back to Jerusalem, being all things to all people. One commentator explains this. He says, making a vow and shaving the head when it was completed was a way of demonstrating his trust in God and showing loyalty to the traditions of Israel without compromising his gospel message. Perhaps such gestures allowed Paul to talk more freely with fellow Jews about the gospel. Makes sense. Others point out that that Paul does this not out, not out of obligation, not out, out of obligation to the law, but voluntarily. There are some, there are some, sometimes we think of vows and, and they're spoken of negatively in parts of scripture. And, and we think of vows um, are something that, oh, we should avoid them. Like, they're, like it's a prid quo pro kind of thing, making a deal with God, trying to get something from him if if we make some kind of promise, Lord, I'll do this, I'll, I'll do this if you give me that. So we should avoid those kinds of things. But what Paul is likely doing here, it's, it's a voluntary reaction to being overwhelmed at the grace of God. Remember, what just happened? What just happened earlier in, in, in Acts 18? Jesus came to Paul in a vision. And he said to Paul in this vision, remember, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. A year and a half after this vision is when the Jews attack Paul by bringing him before Gallio. And these words of Jesus must have come to mind. He realized, ah, that's what Jesus was talking about. No harm will come, and no harm did come to him, right? It was fulfilled. Jesus was with Paul, and he saw the fulfillment of this promise. So, one question might be, did, did Paul, did Paul make this vow before or after? Did he, in faith, upon hearing this vision, in faith, did he stop cutting his hair then? Thankful for the, the promise that was given to him, that, that he would not be harmed. Or was it, was it in gratitude when he saw the fulfillment? So, 
It's one of the, I like to think that it was in faith beforehand because his hair would have been longer. Just would have been a better offering. Giving a year and a half of hair growth. Making this hair a bigger deal. And as he realized the good providence of God, he then realized that it was, it was time to end this vow that was made because he trusted in the promise of God. So I think that's what's going on here. We should act in faith. We should behave according to the promises of God and not simply by what we see and experience. So, not really a Nazarite vow, but something similar. And something that he could use as a witness to the Jews when he returned back to Jerusalem. Paul traveled from Corinth uh, to catch a ship and then head to Ephesus. And Priscilla and Aquila, his fellow tent makers and disciples, they travel with him. And if you remember at the start of this, this second missionary journey, Paul was, he was headed into Asia Minor, right? And then in the route heads north and then further, um, further west to Troas. So he was headed into, he was probably headed to Ephesus at the beginning of his second missionary journey. But the Holy Spirit, says the Holy Spirit prevented him and guided him to Troas. And he has this vision of the Macedonian man calling him over and, and he heads to Philippi. And in the providence of God, well, what would we conclude? The timing just must not have been right to go to Ephesus. The timing wasn't right, and God had other, he wanted him to go to Macedonia first. And now he was going to the place where, not at this point, he's going to the place where he initially wanted to go, to Ephesus. It seems, it seems that God is involved in the details, doesn't it? In the timing. Because now Paul, he's not being prevented to go into Asia Minor. It's not that God just never wanted him to go. It just, he didn't want him to go then. But now he's allowing him to go now. You know, this, this past week, a friend asked me about God's involvement in the details of his creation. Um, he was asking because a friend of his who has experienced some really awful, terrible suffering in his life, not seeing how you know, that question comes up, how can a good God allow such horrible things into my life? And because of that, his friend wrongly concluded that, well, God must not be involved in the details of these terrible sufferings in life. So he ends up removing God, removing God from the details of day-to-day living. It's like the idea that, that, you know, God created everything, then he winds up the clock and he just lets things go. And then occasionally he'll inter, intervene and come in and, and fix the problems. He'll, he'll make something good of it. That's kind of the, the mindset. Now, you ladies who are going through your study of Joseph, you know better, don't you? What a great study in the life of Joseph. You probably have something to say about that kind of thinking. It's, it's the perfect example of sinful people doing Joseph's brothers. Sinful, doing evil things. And yet, what's the message at the end? God ordained that they do these things for his good purposes. God is involved in the details. Joseph's sinful brothers, they're held responsible because God ordained it doesn't mean that they're not responsible for the sin, for the evil that they desired to do and did. So yet God is, he's big enough. He's big enough in his work of providence to ordain these things in such a way that he is not the author of evil, yet he's absolutely in control of every detail. And, and I get it. It's, it's hard to comprehend that. It's 
difficult for us to understand. It's how, but it's what we see all throughout Scripture, isn't it? It's how Peter preached at Pentecost in Acts 2, saying, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They coexist. God had a definite plan, and it involved the free actions of men, and all of the details that would lead to the crucifixion of his son. The sacrifice that was prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3, all throughout Scripture, thousands of years before it actually occurred, the crux, the culmination of our hope for redemption, of God's ultimate display of grace and for His glory, this, of course, was not left simply to the decisions of men, though they were involved in the process. It was not left to the decisions of men with with God just coming in and reacting and making something good of it. No. It's a definite plan. God ordained that this occur. This is how he works. And he is he's just to condemn Judas and Pilate and the Jewish leaders and all of the people who brought it about because of the evil intentions and, and actions that came from their heart. Again, it's a mystery. It's what God's Word reveals to us, though. It's, it's hard for... And this is where I, I, you know, I kind of come and say, you know, it makes sense that we can't make sense of this. It makes sense that finite people cannot fully comprehend an infinite God. It makes sense. Clearly, this is what God reveals to us in His Word. And the same is true in your life. The same principle is true in your life. God ordains. God closes doors. God guides you. And then when you look back over the course of your life, you you may not see it. You may not understand it. But there's often results that cause us to marvel at the wisdom and good providence of God. Paul, Paul is finally making it to Ephesus. And if God had not intervened earlier, if he was not involved, then would Paul have ever met Lydia in Philippi? She's a businesswoman. She's traveling back and forth. Lydia was just one place where she was at. Would he have met the slave girl and the circumstances that led to him being thrown into jail and and the conversion of the Philippian jailer? Would the church in Philippi been what it became to be with those particular foundational members if God had not been involved in the details. What about Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth? All the people that he came into contact there. Would he have ever met and teamed up with Priscilla and Aquila? No. Priscilla and Aquila, who, who then had a marvelous impact, as we see in this end of chapter 18, marvelous impact upon Apollos. Apollos, who became a powerful evangelist and apologist. God is sovereign. And we must not minimize his involvement in the details which lead us to where we are today. A few years ago, I shared something I heard from Tim Keller. I shared this at at one of our women's... um, conferences, many conferences. Um, back in 1990, Tim Keller, he illustrates this truth of God's providence with a funny yet, yet profoundly true story. So back in 1990, this is like the beginning of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in, in Manhattan. And he says this to his church. He says, you know, some of you have been very helped by this church. It's only been here for seven or eight months. 
Do you know why it's here? Well, it's because I had some denominational connections to some people in my Presbyterian denomination that, that, well, they asked me to come here. Why am I in this denomination? Well, it's because my last year of seminary, a man came from England and taught several courses that convinced me that, you know, I wanted to go into this particular denomination. And then he asked, well, why was he there? Well, it was a close call. He was English, and back then in the early 70s, it was, it was very hard for somebody to get a visa to come here and to take a job. One day, the dean of my seminary was praying on his knees saying, saying, oh Lord, how are we going to get this professor here? We need him to, to teach next semester. And one of the students of the seminary was Mike Ford. Mike Ford, who was Gerald Ford's son, who was president of the United States. Mike Ford came to him and said, what's the problem? And the dean told him what the problem was. And Mike Ford says, well, I'll talk to somebody. Next thing you know, the professor was there. He got his visa. Why was Mike Ford the son of the president? Because Nixon resigned. Why did Nixon resign? Because of Watergate. What was Watergate? Well, one day, a security guard happened to notice a door that was ajar in the Watergate building. One day, huh? One day. What if he had driven to work by a different route that day? Well, Teller concluded, well, this church would not exist. Keller continues, when you take yourself out of the center of the universe, you actually become the center of the universe. In this sense, all things work together for good for those who love God. There's a certain sense in which when you give yourself over to God and say, I trust you, you begin to realize that everything that's happening, everything that's happening, even Watergate is happening for me. And we find ourselves trusting him, saying, Lord, you know what's best. By the providence of God, Paul is now finally going to Ephesus. And once again, he goes to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. And think of it. This time, there seems to be this positive response. Instead of picking up stones, we read that they're actually asking him, would you stay longer with us? Stay for a longer period of time. So it seems strange, doesn't it, that Paul would decline. They actually want to hear more. And he says, well, no, I got to go. But if God wills, I'll come back. There it is again. If God wills. Yes, we do what we want to do. We're not robots. We make decisions throughout each day. We make plans. And God's word tells us that God knows the number of our days. He knows each hair on our head. He knows every sparrow that falls to the ground. He's the one who wills or ordains all that occurs. And as James tells us, don't be boastful. Don't be arrogant and assuming that you know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Make plans. But know that God's plan is, is the ultimate here, if the Lord wills. So Paul leaves. And verse 22 tells us that, that Paul lands in Caesarea, then goes up to greet the church. Up. Remember, remember up? Saying up and down is different from our culture when we read this. We, we think up is north and down is south. But they thought in terms of, of elevation. Elevation, 
in regard to worship. Because worship is in the high places. So going up to greet the church is likely a reference to the church in Jerusalem. All these references, going up is, is always to Jerusalem. Going down, whether it's north, south, east, or west, is leaving Jerusalem. So it's, it's likely the church in Jerusalem, the Christian church that's founded, original church, not the church in Caesarea. Paul, is, he's checking back in with the original church, with the apostles, and maybe do, doing something with his hair there. Paul's mindful of the, of the tensions with, with the Gentile churches that he represents. And so he, he greets them and, and maybe proves to them that he's still mindful, he's still respectful to the Jewish ways, and that, that these rumors and accusations about him are not true. And we read this in Acts 21 that the, the Jews were saying Paul was teaching people to forsake the law and the customs and the Jewish customs. So it's possible that Paul's vow is also to show the Jews in Jerusalem that those rumors are not true. That yes, Jesus fulfills the law and we're only righteous in him, but as his followers, we still, we still walk in obedience to the law. He's still a Jew and he still loves his heritage. It's not to earn righteousness, but because we love God. We're devoted to him This in, in the ways in which we live. So Paul is demonstrating this. From there we read that, that Paul goes down, or in this case north, to the sending church in Antioch. So verses 22 and 23 are both the end. So this is, remember, this is the second missionary journey. Going back to the home church marks the end of the second missionary journey. So we, we have this transition from second journey to third journey in these two verses. Verses 22 and 23. Both the end of the second missionary journey and the beginning of the third as he, he once again leaves. And going from this sending church in Antioch. And he, where does he go? He returns to the churches in Galatia and Phrygia. Wanting to encourage them and strengthen them in the faith. Then, beginning with verse 24, Luke switches the scene back to Ephesus. Paul is on his way for what will be his last missionary journey. Meanwhile, back in Ephesus, there's a Jew named Apollos. Paul got his providential haircut and now, by the providence of God, we see we see an ordinary couple, Priscilla and Aquila, being used of God to correct the hermeneutics of Apollos. If you're not familiar with the word hermeneutics, it refers to the right method for interpreting the scriptures. And to be fair, Apollos' problem really wasn't hermeneutics as much as it was a lack of revelation. He didn't see the full picture. Uh, I just use the word hermeneutics because it sounded better than um, haircuts and not knowing about the baptism of Jesus. So, anyway, the point is that Priscilla and Aquila, they heard Apollos speak. And they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Apollos, Apollos is going to be... A very, very popular and effective teacher in the early church. We read about him elsewhere in, the, in our New Testaments. In fact, Paul even refers to him at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Saying, there's some quarreling going on, of course. There's division within the church. Why? Because, well, people are fans of different teachers. Imagine that. Dividing over being fans of your favorite preacher or theologian. What barbarians! I... Paul, Paul isn't criticizing Apollos. He speaks highly of him. In 1 Corinthians 3, he refers to him as a servant through whom they believe. That the Lord is 
is sovereign over each. And those whom Paul planted, Apollos had his role in watering. But God is the one who gives the growth. So Paul, Paul loves Apollos. He appreciates Apollos. He speaks highly of him as a, as a brother and fellow teacher. But at the beginning of his ministry, he needed some help. He needed some help. And God, God ordained that Paul would bring Priscilla and Aquila with him to Ephesus and then leave them there. And they, of course, would go into the synagogue because that's what they did with Paul. So they hear this man who's described as eloquent and competent in the scriptures. He knew the way of the Lord. He was a believer who knew Jesus, who was, who was a part of the way, who was led by the Holy Spirit and taught, it says, taught accurately about Jesus. So what we get from this is that Apollos' teaching wasn't necessarily incorrect as much as it was incomplete. He was a Jew from Alexandria in Egypt, which, which had this large Jewish presence and culture. He knew the scriptures. He was eloquent, a persuasive speaker, intelligent. And he eventually became this powerful apologist, debating and publicly refuting the Jews, proving from the scriptures that, that the Messiah that they're looking for, it's Jesus. So he he became this great figure in the early church. So here he is. He's teaching in the synagogue in Ephesus where Priscilla and Aquila are. And it it seems so small, doesn't it? Again, this is kind of a seemingly boring passage. It seems so small. But what we read is really significant. It should encourage you. It should encourage each of us. How? Well... Look at the role here. Your particular role in Jesus' kingdom. Verse 26 says that Priscilla and Aquila listened to him, listened to him preach, and then took him aside and explained or corrected him. So the main lesson here is don't rebuke me in public. Take me aside. <laughs> Have a little class, will you? No, really, isn't it encouraging that this, this tent-making couple would be in the right place at the right time and that God would give them the role of helping this highly educated, eloquent speaker? Seemingly nobody's. And that the result of their, their little part in, in humbly correcting him would result in a strong and significant teaching ministry that that in some people's minds some people's minds rivaled Paul rivaled his ministry even to the point of preferring to hear Apollos over the apostle Paul and they had a part in that this ordinary couple by the providence of God had a massive impact on a powerful teacher what a what a great example of of one body with many needed parts. That it's not just the preachers or the evangelists, but that you, you have a significant role in the body of Christ. You have a role. That's what we should get from this. Ministry, ministry is the work of the entire church. Not just the pastors or elders or deacons. Even if you're even if you're suffering and unable to leave your house, is God sovereign over those circumstances? Is he providential over maybe the people who come into your home? It seems so small. I think of Betty Strauss. What I heard some people say when she was first hospitalized. Of course, praying for her in the midst of it, praying for her healing and and comfort. But I heard, I think a couple of people say, you know, God must have somebody in the hospital that that he wants to hear about Jesus because even in her stuff, we know Betty will tell them about Jesus. (laughs) 
Or I also think of a great friend who's now with the Lord. Some of you remember Bob Rickabaugh, who was so bold in his witness. And as he became less mobile, he, he said something like, you know, I, I, I would, he thought of him, a great witness, evangelist. He said, I would go and tell people about Jesus, but now God's bringing them to me. If you're mostly working from home or mostly around your own children, you, you have a role. God has placed you there. Tell them about Jesus. Priscilla and Aquila had a wonderful role. And I'm going to take it a step further here. In that the one who's likely doing the doctrinal explaining and correction here, likely it's Priscilla, not Aquila. And most people believe that because it's really unusual that Luke gives the wife's name before her husband's name. That's really unusual. Typically, you'd say Aquila and Priscilla. But here it's Priscilla and Aquila. And, and that's repeated. I think they're introduced at the beginning of chapter 18 with Aquila first. But then all the references to them, since they're known, it's Priscilla and Aquila. Most think that it's because... She has a more prominent role in their ministry. That she's the one with a greater knowledge of the scriptures. And that she's the one giving this speaker, Apollos, a theology lesson. Apollos, he knew the baptism of John, but not the baptism of Jesus. He knew a baptism, what is the baptism of John? Think it, It's a baptism of preparation for the Messiah. So he knew that, but he didn't know about the baptism that that inaugurated Christ's kingdom under the new covenant. It seems like like it's an eschatological confusion here. That even though he knew Jesus as the Messiah, he didn't know about the reality of his kingdom and and a new covenant. And that we're, we're not waiting for this kingdom, but it's now. Again... Even though Jesus is coming again someday and there will be an ultimate realization of his kingdom, we should be living as if his kingdom has not already begun. It's already begun. Jesus accomplished our salvation on the cross. He defeated sin and death. He's alive, resurrected, and his ascension into heaven, it's not a departure. It's an exaltation. He's the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days, ascending to the ultimate throne, given all authority. We're not waiting for Him to be the King. Christ is the King. We're not baptized in preparation for the Messiah. We're baptized as those who are under a new covenant with the promise, with the promise of God that all who look to Him in faith are righteous in Him. And as those who belong to Him, we have a role to play right now. Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority, where? In heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Go, this is why we go. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All authority, not just in heaven, but in heaven and on earth. And yes, Satan is active and we see a lot of evil. But I love what Martin Luther said. He said, you know, the devil is God's devil. Jesus is the one with all authority. And because of this, we are to go and make disciples. Getting back to Priscilla. So here's the question. Was it wrong? Was it wrong for her as a woman to teach a man? (gasps) Was it wrong for her to be involved in pulling Apollos aside and correcting his theology? Is it wrong for me to be in in the room at one of our women's conferences and um, 
I happened to learn something <laughs> from a woman speaker? Or if I read a book written by a woman? Or to have my wife or another woman in the church give me some biblical insight? Let's not get carried away here with the role of women. I bring it up to say that, that we each have a role. We need, to, we need to be careful when it comes to a view that would wrongly exclude women in their role in the church. I think it's clear, it's clear that Paul teaches that the role of pastor or elder, it's, it's only for men. And that it's not, a, it's not a cultural thing, because how does Paul argue it? He goes back to creation. Shows God's purposes and, and the differences of roles for men and women as a part of creation. It's not cultural. So Paul is clear. Role of pastor, elder, it's for men. Having to do with the way God made us. So I'm not talking about that. Churches that ordain women as elders in the church are clearly disobeying the teachings of Scripture. And yet, on the other hand, churches can also err in silencing and minimizing the godly roles that women can have. It's a topic, you know, if, if you've got a lot of questions, it's a topic, I'm sure Pastor Bill would be happy to talk to you about this. Right, Bill? He takes on all the tough stuff going through 1 Peter. Now, there's probably a lot more to be discussed, but in a very general way, let me just say that, that scripture, scripture elevates the role of women. Christianity has done more for women than any other religion, any other teaching in human history. Generally speaking... It seems to me that the role of authority in the home and church are, by God's design and creation, given to men. But that authority is not intended to silence or demean women. And that's what, sadly, many do. And both are just as wrong. It's not meant to silence or demean women, but to elevate, in fact, to elevate and appreciate and benefit from each other. Priscilla played a role that had significant fruit throughout the ministry of Apollos, and you women, likewise, have much to teach. And it can be done, which it's like, we've got to figure out the ways in which it can be done. It's not in a role, clearly. But it can be done in a way that honors and submits to God's word. We've got to figure that out. Okay, so let me, since the kids are back, tells me it's time to get wrap this up, Pastor Brian. Let me wrap this up with a few quick applications. First, women have a very significant role in teaching, as is evidenced by Priscilla. We need to submit to the authority of God's word when it comes to church offices. Churches that give the title pastor to women are in error. But churches that silence or ignore the gifts given to women are also in error. So we need to be a, we need to be a good team like Priscilla and Aquila obviously were. Second, hospitality, right? Hospitality is critical within the church. We see it all over Acts, and I assume that that Priscilla and Aquila, they probably invited Paul, Apollos over for dinner in order to privately correct him. The home, the home was not simply for church gatherings. It's a powerful atmosphere that continues to this day for the sake of community, for the sake of fellowship, for the sake of Christian growth. Third, marriages. Marriages make a great team for ministry. Some of you women are like Priscilla. You, you know more about the Bible and theology than your husbands do. And that shouldn't be a threat to us guys. It shouldn't be a threat. If that's the case, it should be a benefit. Sometimes it's, it's simply the gifting of God. So take advantage of this because as a couple, 
as a couple, you can have a powerful opportunity to teach. That's what's going on here. As a couple, they taught, they corrected, they instructed. And she did so under the spiritual covering of her husband. Lastly, I'm sure there are many other lessons here, but but another I see is that we are to minister in the midst of affliction. Let's not forget that Priscilla and Aquila are only in the picture because they were kicked out of their home in Rome. And in coming to Corinth, they they weren't paralyzed by this suffering, but instead they had their eyes open to see, you know, what does God have for me here? And they meet Paul and they minister to him and team up with him and they show him hospitality and they they're continued to be using their their gifts in the building of Christ's kingdom, in the midst of being exiles, in the midst of their suffering. So don't let affliction paralyze you. God is sovereign. He's He's the one who directs our steps. So stay mindful of the ways that that he's gifted you and the circumstances that, that are surrounding you. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are reminded that the details of this life are in your hand. That the gifts each person has are because of you and intended for your glory, for your kingdom now. Lord, please strengthen and encourage those who are, who are feeling stuck in their circumstances, not able to be out or to go to many places. So we pray for a greater awareness of, of your calling upon us and the seasons that we're in, that we would grow in our love for Jesus, having our eyes open to those around us and our conversations about him and his gospel. Lord, give us a a conviction to be a hospitable people, to grow in community, to be a witness to a variety of people in our lives. We thank you. Thank you for your church, for the various people and gifts that you have given. Help Help us, Lord, to tap into these gifts and use them as you would have us do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.